Hello, and welcome back to Close Reads here on the Close Reads Podcast Network. I'm David Kern, back from a brief one-week sabbatical. I don't think that's how sabbaticals work, but uh, a brief one-week <laughs> one break. And I'm here with uh, Angelina Stanford and Adam Andrews. Angelina, Adam, welcome back to Close Reads. Thank Thanks. you. So Adam has been here for one episode previously. We discussed a short story. Angelina, of course, has been here many episodes, short stories and otherwise. And we are here to discuss uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald's The Great Gatsby. We're going to be spending the rest of 2018 discussing that. We're going to uh, do our normal cycle where we discuss the chapters. And then at the end, we do a Q&A episode where we answer your questions. So if you have questions as we're going, you can, of course, post them to our Close Reads Facebook group, which I noticed, Adam, I noticed you, you submitted for approval. To, be, to become a part yeah, of Yeah, I waited on pins and needles. I was on tinder hooks until I got the approval. I'm so excited to be in the <laughs> I love being on the inside. <laughs> well, you will find that it is both a blessing and a curse to be on this show and also in the Facebook group. Actually, that's not, that's not true. It's purely, purely blessing. <laughs> um, but now that you're on the show and you are, you know, presenting your opinions for the world, be prepared for them to be called into question by the by the listeners. So now that you're on the Facebook group, they can tag you when they call and call you into question. Your, your theories. Fair enough. <laughs> I've been I've been fairly warned. <laughs> Prepare yourself exactly. So people, yeah, go ahead and post your questions on the uh, on the Facebook group. We'll go ahead and just say um, for the sake of the conversation, let's do a hashtag and just call it uh, Gatsby Q and A, um, and we'll say that we will use the ampersand. So Gatsby Q&A with the ampersand and that will allow us to just kind of track the conversation. Or if you are not on Facebook and you would like to send us a question, you can do that by emailing us at closereadspodcasts at gmail.com. I set up an email specifically for the uh, for the for Q&A and stuff like that because I hear from people who have made the life choice not to be on Facebook. <laughs> Probably smart. A life choice. I, like that. I love that how, yes, made the life choice, met with their life coach, therapist. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Pastor, probably the pastor. Um, and, you know, we support people who want to make that choice. There are fewer of us than there were, well, increasingly every day. But if that is you, then feel free to, uh, to email us and I will uh, store the questions there for the Q&A episode. Um, but yeah, we're going to talk Gatsby. First of all, Thanksgiving just passed. Angelina, what was your Thanksgiving like? Did you do anything fun? Did anything stand out? Or did you just spend the whole time reading in the quiet of your quiet and solitude of your home? <laughs> I, had, I had a great, I had a, had a those are not either or. No, I was going to say, that sounds like that's a good, that's not a negative thing. That's like, I mean, after the eating, there was reading. Uh, no, I had, I had a great Thanksgiving. And uh, okay, so I'll tell you a story. And this, this will give our listeners insight into my mind as if they don't have enough of that already. But uh <laughs> Every year is too much food. I, I think this is everybody's life problem, right? Just too much food. Um, and I just, I can't stand throwing away food. So I like put my foot down this year. We're going to have a small menu. We're going we're gonna to do math. We're going to figure out exactly how much food we need. And we're not going to go crazy. So as part of that, I Best had determined. plans, I assume. Exactly. I had determined one pumpkin eggnog pie, one apple pie. Okay. We have with three people in my house for Thanksgiving, okay, including me. I figured two pies was an abundance. <laughs> yeah, but right? how do you, the math doesn't work because how do you get to a pie per person? Well, okay, fractions are complicated, but still, <laughs> okay? Yes, yeah, so that was my plan, two pies. So I am in the kitchen. My son comes home from college, who's an English major at Belmont Abbey College, sits, so he sits across from me. He's, he's on the snack bar, right? He's on a stool. I'm across from him. I'm peeling apples and chopping apples for this apple pie, this small, 
minimalist pie Thanksgiving that I'm planning on having in my foolishness. He sits down, he says, he starts telling me, I just finished reading Hamlet. It was the single most beautiful thing I have ever read in my life. I was so profoundly moved. And so I am just, tell me more. Oh my gosh, tell me more, tell me more. So and next so thing you just, knew, you had three pies worth of apples? Oh my gosh, don't steal my pie sign. <laughs> oh, sorry. I am talking talking to him so excitedly. Right. And I'm like, I'm just like, my mouth is running a mile, you know, just, just, you know, light speed. I'm like, and did you see this theme and that theme and that? And, and here's, here's an overall vision for understanding every single Shakespeare plane. It's like, Oh, well then that was this speech or, or this was Julius. And like, he's just filling in the gaps as I'm laying out the vision. I'm going crazy. At this point, I look down at this bowl of apples in front of me. And my son says to me, I'm pretty sure that's not going to fit in one pie. <laughs> and that is the story of how one pie became three pies. Thanks to William Shakespeare. <laughs> Shakespeare, the gift that keeps on giving. Yes. If you want pie at my house, you know how to properly distract me. <laughs> I, bet, I bet there wasn't, I bet there isn't a lot left. I bet you did a number on those pies. Not you by yourself, but. We did. We, we, I did not throw away any pie. Well, that's good. Uh, Adam, did yeah. you what? Did you also make too many pies? No, <laughs> actually, make we, too many pies for your family. We had a very similar um, plan in mind at the beginning. Let's let's tone it down a little bit so we don't have that much extra, and let's just uh, you know let's let's try and hew to the one pie per person rule, and we uh, we managed to do it. Um, but and and oddly enough, we didn't eat all the pies, so there's actually pie left over, even though we tried to keep it down. I don't know what's going on. Maybe we're all on just, just, you know, diets or something that we're not telling anyone about, but actually we ended up having, having leftovers, still eating the turkey soup, even as we speak, which is one of my favorite parts about the holidays is the turkey soup. But one fun literary thing we did is we went to see a, a video simulcast of the West End production of King Lear that um, is running right now, starring oh, Ian wow. McKellen yeah. uh, as Lear. And we um, actually, it's, it wasn't exactly a simulcast. It was it, uh, several weeks after the final performance, but we went and saw it in a, in a theater in Spokane, mm. Washington, where we live. And oh boy, you guys, it was fabulous. Mm. It was so much different than a, than a movie version of it because it's actually mm. just a filmed stage play and you know, mm -hmm. it's all one take. And man, oh man, he's 80 something and hasn't lost a single step. He was just great as Lear. So anyway, if you get a chance to, to see that, I highly recommend it. Mm. Yeah, a couple people that was playing here in North Carolina recently and some of our staff people went. And the funny thing was, <clears throat> no one knew my dad was going. So some of the staff people were there and then some other people from our local community were there. And it just so happened they all bumped into him and didn't know he was going to be there. And he, I guess he just decided he didn't want to be a part of the community. He just wanted to go about it by himself. Which Classic King Lear right. move. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, well, again, we're here to talk about The Great Gatsby. So let it, let's go ahead and do that. Um, but I, I just want to request that at some point during the course of this conversation, you need, Adam, you need to at least... Somehow the story of the bear in your house has to come up. So I think we the just story need... of the bear in my house. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay. At some point, you have to tell the story of the fact that there was a bear in your house because I every time. How I am I going to link that to the Great Gatsby? We'll figure That's... it out. But we've it was now a bear of a party. There you go. Just go with it. It's a bear <laughs> of a party. Uh, so I'm gonna we're gonna tease that, and the the game now is over the next four or five weeks. How does Adam Andrews figure out how to tell the story of the bear in his house on the show? <laughs> <laughs> but let's talk. Let's talk Gatsby. So. F. Scott Fitzgerald, The Great Gatsby. Adam, you have written about this 
book for us previously. You wrote about uh, an article for our magazine for Forma called "The Classical Refrain of the Great Gatsby." And, oh yeah, right. Um, I've we've, you and I've spoken about this before. That this is a book that you have um, some affection for, and I was wondering if you could kind of tell us. I guess not so much why you love it, because presumably we're going to talk about that uh, throughout the course of the next few weeks, but. Where did you first encounter The Great Gatsby and what was your first impression of it way back then? Oh, that's a funny question because I, I first read it in high school. I think I was a junior in high school. And my first impression of it was, huh? <laughs> there you have my first impression. The thing went completely <laughs> over my head. I had no idea uh, what it was about. I couldn't probably have recounted to you even the barest plot outlines. Um, and that's probably due to the fact that I was a late bloomer intellectually <laughs> by the time when I was 16 and a half years old, still frankly couldn't read all that well. Mm-hmm. But, but I think the, um, the, the decadence and debauchery of the, of the story are probably the first uh, real impressions that I had and the darkness that, uh, that pervades it because of those things. I think that's the overriding um, takeaway uh, that, that, that I would bet initial readers of the story uh, come away with if they're not familiar with it already and don't know it by reputation. I think even then I I wouldn't be surprised to hear um, a reaction to the darkness, the debauchery, first of all, and the darkness as a result. Hmm. Do you think, well, never mind. I'll save that question. So how many times have you read it in the ensuing years? Oh, I don't know. Eight or 10 probably. Okay. And Angelina, you, um, I falsely accused you of uh, actually <laughs> hating this book, um, which is more fun if you pretend to hate it, probably. But um, do, yeah, you, you read... cast me in a role. What's that the I most fun is being falsely accused. <laughs> <laughs> True. So, uh, so you read it when you were in high school, right? Was that similar to yes? Adam? Okay. I read and, it. I read it one summer in high school. Yeah. And your first impression? So I don't remember almost anything about the book okay except the eyes like literally that was yeah, all yeah, yeah. i remembered about the eyes. yes i could not have told you the name though but yeah, uh yeah. but i was so i was thinking about that this week um and i i don't remember that i disliked it so okay i mean it okay. didn't it didn't I remember the eyes too come to think of it and it's because my copy of this of the book had eyes on the cover <laughs> That's oh, yeah, why yeah, I yeah 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 Yep. And they Scribner has, br- or Simon and Schuster rather, has brought back a, that version of it with the big, the blue eyes that they, um, that's a great cover that they sort of blended. They kind of like borrow a few metaphors. Um, yeah. And, and that's, that's a pretty interesting choice, but so you remember the eyes, did you, what else do you remember about, about, or did you, I before won't. you started reading? Um, that was pretty much all. I mean, I remember their names, Gatsby and Daisy, but I may mm-hmm. have remembered that more just from the fact that there were movie versions floating around, mm. uh, which I had never seen and still have never seen. Um, but, uh, no, I didn't remember anything other than that. And that, uh, I, I liked the writing. Mm-hmm. I agree with that. I remember thinking, well, I don't know what he's talking about, but he sure says it beautifully. <laughs> Right. So I didn't, I mean, and there are plenty of books I read around that time that I hated. Right. But, and this right. was, this was definitely not one. Like I didn't, didn't become my, my life's work or anything as a result of <laughs> one teenage read, but I didn't hate it. Right. There was right. a Robert Redford uh, movie. Uh, yeah. Robert Redford played Gatsby, I think in the seventies. And Mia my, Farrow. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Was Daisy. And my mom saw that movie and I, I never, I never saw it, but she came back from the movie and she said, didn't work. 
Robert Redford was the hero, but he died in the end or he you know, didn't win in the end. And that just never works for me. If Robert Redford can't be the winner. <laughs> and that was a funny you know, commentary on my mom, but, but also I got the impression from that early comment that there was something uh, fundamentally different slash wrong about this mm. story that it's got a, it's got a hero who, a hero who loses, or maybe not even a hero who loses, but a hero who's, who's a fake hero. There's something artificial about him. Mm-hmm. And therefore the story is suspect somehow. Mm. And I remember yeah. carrying that impression into my, into my later years in my dealings with the story. And that's been profoundly, um, well, it's been profound, I think that idea. Hmm. And we are definitely going to have to talk about that. Before we dive too much into the character of Gatsby, I'd love to talk a little bit about our narrator, if that's if that's cool. So we get. Do, do you what What are your general impressions of first person narrator books? Do you find? I mean, this is kind of a silly question, I suppose. Um, but do you find that you are drawn to first person narrators, or that you find them to be? less appealing more often. I'll ask Angelina that first. What do, you, what do you think about that? Well, it it honestly depends how sophisticated you're talking about as a narrator, because mm-hmm. uh, I mean, I just just gave a talk about Pamela and just, you know, ripped it about the epistolary novel and the first, you know, and the limits of those original first person narrators and mm-hmm. how long it took um, as an art form for the narrator and, and how to handle things like point of view, how long it took us to get sophisticated about that. So it depends what, what you mean, you know, what kind of book you're talking about. I mean, obviously this mm-hmm. reads way differently than some of the more early awkward ones where they're trying to come up with all kinds of narrative devices to figure out how they know what someone else is thinking. Right. <laughs> right. Um, but I wouldn't say that I'm, I don't know. I guess I never thought about it one way or the other, if I have more of an inclination or not. I think if I think if I'm drawn into a, a book's writing, it almost doesn't matter to me what the point of view is. Hmm. I, I well, Adam, what do you, how do you feel about that? Do you have you ever noticed whether you have an inclination for or against? Like, do you tend oh, to gravitate towards or away? I, I from? love them. Uh, yeah, I think they're great, and I, I one of the reasons I like them is that the author gets to um, the. the how do I put it? The screen between the author and his protagonist is thinner and uh, more translucent. Mm-hmm. Um, and you still have to do some intellectual work to decide not only what the, the first person narrator's stance towards the story's themes is, but also what the author's stance is towards the narrator. And there's obviously a distinction there, but, um, I like to, I like the feeling that I'm talking to the author more or less directly that, and that feeling I think is heightened when a first person narrator is involved. Mm-hmm. I mean, some of my you know, some of my favorite works of American literature are in the first person, Gatsby being one of them. But I think Huckleberry Finn is another great example. And To Kill a Mockingbird from the 60s is a great example. Those are, those are really powerful, maybe even in part because the, the narrator is, is uh, the protagonist. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I'm listening to you, to you talk and I'm thinking I'm, I'm at a disadvantage here because my field is medieval literature and there really aren't any first person narrators. <laughs> so, <laughs> so yeah, of modern, listening to you talk of modern books, yes, yes. I mean, I'm, I'm tracking, I mean, I literally finished Jaber Crow and then picked up Gatsby. So boy, is that ringing in my ears right now. Yeah. Yeah. First person narrators, both named Jay. Yeah. But I even think I even think from from the medieval period that the Divine Comedy is a great example of that same thing. I mean, the, the yeah, line, between, well, the sure. line between the author and his persona is 
definitely comfortably blurry and you get to you get to think wow is is it Dante I'm talking to? I mean, he even names himself, mm-hmm. but you know, there obviously there still should be a distinction. And Chaucer yeah. wrote himself into his story. Yeah, a lot of them did. Yeah, certainly precursors to what we're finding. What we what we what is so common now, <clears throat> probably better done in some ways. Um, I, the reason I mentioned that is because I remember being a kid and avoiding first person narrator books a lot of the time. Huh. I mean, I'm not talking like really? high school, but I remember when I was a younger kid, and I and I was trying to figure out in retrospect, why that is, it was like, but it's probably just the same reason as the fact that when I was a kid, I also did not want to watch movies that weren't made by Met- by MGM with the lion at the beginning that roared when the credits <laughs> came up. That was pretty much when I was eight years old. If the movie didn't have that, then I probably wasn't going to watch the movie. So right, maybe right. it's just the same thing that has absolutely no reason, reasoning whatsoever, except that you're eight or, and you don't know what you or want. Or it could be, it could be some sort of childhood traumatic experience. Like my son, Ian, who works with us at Center for Lit was forced to read David Copperfield by his mother, my wife, at, <laughs> At a, at a at an age that he maintains to this day was like five years early, and David Copperfield is a novel in the first person that yeah. also happens to be eight hundred and fifty pages long, and yeah. the the experience of of as Ian will put it if you ever ask him slogging through seven hundred pages of exposition to get to the plot <laughs> that happens in the last ninety pages was a traumatic experience to the point that he said. Before, ever after that moment, if you handed him a book, he would look at you suspiciously and say. Is this an I book? <laughs> <laughs> I was born or so I've been told. <laughs> and he just said, if it's an I book, forget it. It's probably going to be 850 pages long. <laughs> yeah, that could be. I, and I, I wonder if there is like a certain degree of subtlety that you were kind of remarking or kind of alluding to that maybe as, as young kids, that even the more precocious readers among us, it's difficult to, to sort of be able to, to kind of take on the, I mean, you're, the author is giving us a persona in a first person, in a first person narrator, but in a way that like, I mean, as you, I'm trying to think of how to say this. Like if I'm reading a third person narrator, like Harry Potter or something, I feel like there is a sort of um, distance between the yeah, narrative is. story yeah. that is where you exist as a reader. Well, you're mm-hmm. eavesdropping on this story, right? You're mm-hmm. peeking into it. But with, mm-hmm. yeah, with a first-person narrator, there's a degree of subtlety in terms of where you lie, and it's hard to find that place for yourself when you're when you're an, either an inexperienced reader or a young reader or something. And I think that's especially true with Gatsby because the uh, for reasons we'll probably get into as we go along. But the first-person narrator is um, he stands in a relationship to you, the reader, that takes a while to figure out. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think in the in the first chapter, and I don't know if you're ready to dive in yet. But yeah, no, that's exactly I what I was it, interested in talking about. Well, I think that he, that Nick Carraway um, throws out some some signals in the first chapter that a careful reader will take away uh, a, a sense of a disquieting sense of where do I stand with this guy? Yep. Uh, based on a couple of the things he says, and so that that intimacy that we would normally feel when when a guy comes to us and says, "I'm the narrator of the story. You can follow me along. You can trust me about my observations of this story." Um, we don't actually I'm the most honest person I've ever met. Yeah. We don't actually know at the end of chapter one, whether we can trust him. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's, uh, you know, maybe a 20th century change being rung on the old first person narrator theme. Do when you, when you were reading this, Angela, you, I'm very curious about how your perspective on this, well, you're on your experience reading this for the first time in so long. Cause Adam and I have read it many times 
um, we'd probably be in a healthy competition for the most times that we've read this. And um, I'm curious about how your, it's got a rep, there's your experience with it when you read it when you were younger in high school in that summertime. And then there's probably the reputation and the things you've heard about it over the years, read about it, um, the sort of rumors about it, that sort of thing. And then there's now this rereading of it again. So I'll be curious as we go through this uh, to know what your experience is like and how that's changing your perspective or how those rumors and stuff inform that reading of it. But I'm particularly interested in this this first episode about this narrator and, and how you sort of um, approach him and how you read him. Do you, like Adam, sense this sort of... Um, I don't, I don't want to say dishonesty because I don't think that's what Adam was saying, but there is certainly a sense where maybe we don't, he's keeping us at arm's length. Do you feel that way? I feel like I'm at such a disadvantage because I don't have any idea how this ends. <laughs> but, uh, no, I, I did not. I did not necessarily feel that. I mean, what, what is standing out to me in these first two chapters is the way that Fitzgerald is handling one of my favorite literary motifs and that's of the disguise mm -hmm. and the questions of identity and the masks that everyone wears. Um, and so where like in a Shakespeare would handle it by literally having people in disguise and masks, he's bringing up all the different kinds of masks people wear, right? Mm -hmm. From the clothes and their manners, the way they talk expressions. And that, so, so that then did raise in my mind the question of does our narrator also wear a mask? Mm -hmm. And so I don't know what the answer to that is, but it did occur to me that that was a possibility mm -hmm. and a mask that he doesn't even know he's wearing. So, I mean, he could be outright lying when he says he's honest or he may really think he is. Mm -hmm. He could be blind. So th that was a question that came to mind. Yes. Is he also wearing a mask? I think it's interesting that he says in the, in the, the first just opening paragraphs about, he's talking about his, his initial conversation with his father. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, whenever you feel like criticizing anyone, his father says, just remember that all the people in the world and haven't had the advantages you've had or something like that. And he says, um, I, I, that sort of dropped down into my heart and I took it to heart. And then he says, in consequence, I'm inclined to reserve all judgments. I have it that has opened up many curious natures to me, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. I'm inclined to reserve all judgments and then proceeds for the next three chapters for us, <laughs> some pretty, um, some pretty tight fisted judgments on literally everyone he sees. And, and the question that has to come up in your mind, is he, um, th does he not know himself as a judgmental narrator or is he intentionally right. giving us a mask as Angelina says? Well, we got to right. talk I about felt, that. I felt the same way at the end of chapter three, when he says, I had to tidy up a little business back at home and then proceeds to tell us how he's led this girl to believe they're in this relationship yeah. when exactly. he's clearly not. And then he says, but you know, this is my greatest fault. I'm so honest. So yeah, that, I've got this moral code. Is, hmm. Well, he, he even, you know, that in that first paragraph that Adam's talking about there, he's talking about how um, he, 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 his part of his code, if you will, I mean, he's constantly alluding to this sense of there's, there's these sort of strictures that he lives by or these rules that he lives by. And this, this reserving judgments is one of them. And he says, there's this irony, right? Because he's talking about how his father says to reserve judgment. Reserving judgments is a matter of infinite hope, he says on page two. And then he says, I'm still a little afraid of missing something if I forget that. As my father snobbishly suggested, and I snobbishly repeat, a sense of the fundamental decencies is parceled out unequally at birth. And I love that he's saying that reserving judgment, and then he's just call it, he immediately calls his father snobbish. 
Yeah, and also the, the, the point of that whole sentence, a sense of the fundamental decencies is parceled out unequally at birth. In other words, some of us are better than others. Mm-hmm. If that's not a judgmental comment, I don't know what is. Yeah, well, I wrote right. it in the margin, and I could be way off about this, because again, I don't I have no idea where this story is going, but I wrote in the margin Midwest values. It's like he's, he's bringing with him these Midwest values, these fundamental decencies that he's then going to judge everybody by in the East. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I think that's and, exactly right. And it's a lot closer to Tom's perspective about, you know, the Nordic races and the things that he's talking about than I think right. probably he'd be willing to admit. I mean, maybe it's less, maybe it's slightly like less dark, but it's sort of cut from the same cloth that yeah. know, people are just better than other people. It's not as, it's not as sort of evil as what Tom is sort of claiming and the, the science, the scientific theories that Tom is espousing, but it's, it's maybe it's a lesser version of, of Tom's sort of prejudices. Yeah. Well, and, I, oh, and again, again, this, this idea that you don't know how self-conscious he is. Fitzgerald isn't letting us make a judgment on Nick uh, because he at one, uh, on the one hand seems to be saying that sort of stuff without really realizing the irony and on the other hand, he goes out and says it. I mean, when when he's revealing in the, I think it's page two or page three, he says, when I came back from the East last autumn, I felt that I wanted the world to be in uniform and at a sort of moral attention forever. Hmm. So I was, I was um, after my experience that I'm about to relate to you, I, I had a, a heightened desire for moral rectitude. He says, I wanted no more riotous excursions with privileged glimpses into the human heart. I wanted the, I wanted the verities to hold. One it, of the, it's a judgmental perspective on the world. One of the things I love that he, that Gatsby does, I mean, that Fitzgerald does is the way, I mean, Gat, Fitzgerald, <laughs> Fitzgerald could write, like, like you said, he could push some letters together with the best of them. But the, there's also this sense that maybe in the way Caraway is writing his story, there's like, it's kind of snobbish in and of itself. The way the, the sort of, the sort of uh, cadences with which he writes and his vocabulary. And I mean, yeah, it's sort of in keeping with writers of the, of the era, but also I think that Fitzgerald is, you know, offering giving us a narrator who is a little bit grandiose in the way that he thinks about himself. Um, even as he pretends to be sort of humble. Oh, and he's quick to pick that up in other people. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 Angeline, you were going to say something a, a second ago. What, what were you going to say? Well, when, uh, when we're talking about how aware, or any of these characters of, of what they're doing. I couldn't help but think about the, 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 the context of Tom saying uh, his, his going on his racist speech about the superiority of the Nordic race. Um, he's having, he's giving a speech to them about what he perceives to be the reason for the decline of civilization after he has just taken a phone call from his mistress. <laughs> I mean, mm. the, the great irony of that scene. What there's, so we can either just write him off as he's a huge hypocrite or you can say that he's completely blind. Like he doesn't see the decline of civilization in moral terms. Hmm. Well, of course, blindness is a consistent theme, right? Vision and blindness sure. and that goes along with the, the optometrist ad. <laughs> yeah. The, and that goes along with the masks, right? Like what, what do we see? Are we seeing the real thing? Are we, what are we allowing other people to see? Um, and the whole story of course, kind of happening under the, the, uh, the, the watchful gaze of, of the optometrist. I, I was kind of trying to pick out the number of times 
in one chapter, the word blind was used. And I think at one point I got up to like eight or nine, which seems like it would be purposeful <laughs> for a writer of oh, yeah. the sort of skill mm-hmm. of Scott Fitzgerald. Um, do you, do you... That's funny. I was underlining every time he said restless. Mm. Go on. Well, that was one of the things I noticed was that Nick says... I came home from the war and I was restless. And then the first mm-hmm. thing he says about Tom is that he's restless. Every Jordan's restless. Everybody's restless, but so is Nick. Mm. Oh yeah. Yeah. I think you're exactly right. There is no distance. Um, th- well, the distance is artificial between Nick and the, the culture that he's judging. Um, he, he might, he might want us to believe that there's a distance that he sets himself up above it, but in every other way, he's right down there among it and he's as blind and as restless and as a part of what's going on as can be. I think that's really, uh, that's a good observation. And I think it's clear from the very beginning of the story. Mm -hmm. And he also tells us it's on page two in my book, but I think I have way bigger pages. Um, He, his family also has a fake origin story. Yeah, I was just going to mention that. I love that. Mm -hmm. A romantic fake origin story, right? My family have been prominent, well-to-do people in the Middle Western city for three generations. The Caraways are something of a clan, and we have a tradition that we're descended from the Dukes of Buccleuch. But the actual founder of my line was my grandfather's brother, who came here in 51, sent a substitute to the Civil War, and started the wholesale hardware business that my father carries on today. (laughs) Perfect. It's like (laughs) every American family, right? And this, by the we way, is a great example. We this is the great example of foreshadowing, mm-hmm. not to give anything away, but some sometime after chapter three, it's going to be really interesting that there's fake origin stories going on here. <laughs> well, I mean, and even though I don't know that, I don't remember that much about the story. I There's enough mystery about the origin of Gatsby that I know something's coming. Well, that line about sent a substitute to the Civil War. Uh, that's in there on purpose. Let's just put it that way. Oh, all right. All right. Well, but, I, I mean, thought it was at least questionably honorable. <laughs> well, I, well, I was just going to say there's the, there's certainly the foreshadowing, the sort of thematic elements of that. But one of the things that I think makes, makes Fitzgerald such a great writer is that he can do that. And it also means something else. So I think that that can, you know, there's some very, there's some deep American neuroses coming out in that, in that, uh, in that, uh, that description as well. And that's probably one of the reasons you know, if you add up all the deep American neuroses that are in this book, it probably is one of the reasons why it's commonly considered to be, you know, one of the contenders for the great American novel, whatever that means. Mm-hmm. I also would like to point out in the paragraph that I just read, this this struck me too. It's not just a fake origin story. It's romantic and medieval. Like, oh, our line goes all the way back to, you know, mm-hmm. the Scottish. Um, and and I, I know enough about this book from other people's conversations that is going to be saying something about the American dream. And so it's interesting to me that there seems to be this need to tie your family back to Europe. And not just Europe, but like successful Europe. The, yeah. The aristocracy, right? The rumor that uh, Gatsby's from the Kaiser related to the, <laughs> Kaiser. the Kaiser. Yeah, exactly. Do you, uh, Adam, do you have any, uh, any origin stories you like to tell people that are maybe true or not true about my own family? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Oh yeah, all... oh, absolutely. Uh, we're <laughs> descendants of Macbeth, the, the, uh, oh. the Shakespearean medieval King of Scotland. Oh, absolutely. Direct line, baby. Huh? What do you, that, that's, um, oh, well, then I'll, then I will say in real life, Macbeth was not bad. He was a good guy. <laughs> we don't even care about that. He was just awesome. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> 
good or bad, whatever. It doesn't matter. He was, he was significant. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't matter. He was significant. Spoken like Tom Buchan. <laughs> <laughs> it's like my family. So my great, great grandfather or whatever, he came over to the U S before world war one. And his Kern was a name he had adapted or adopted, I suppose. His real name was Polak, is my understanding. He was from what is now Slovenia. And there are all kinds of stories about why he actually came over. We don't entirely know. He probably just came over for a job. But there's one story that there was a woman, he came over running away from the law. And so he changed his name so they wouldn't find him. He came over here um, to get married to someone and then she wouldn't marry him with the name Polak. So he changed it to Kern. There's all kinds of stories that no one's exactly sure about. And I'm not, I don't know where they all come from, but there does seem to be this... um, you know, this, this this American like thing where we where where our origin stories need to have some sort of romance to them. And do you think that that is a a un, uniquely American thing, or is that just a un, more of a human thing? You think? Well, that's a good question. I think that that uh, it's certainly a significant thing. The fact that it's American is certainly significant for this story. Uh, being written when it was written, I think the fact that um, uh, that our origins are are self-imagined and created, and they only have significance um, in the context of what we're trying to achieve and what we're trying to um, to portray as an image, and what we're trying to get and gain and acquire. I think that's one of the main features of this period, and also one of the main features of this story that Fitzgerald is trying to critique. Hmm. Angela, no, you- I have that. No, I have that sense too. Like, um, the American ideal is the self-made man. Yeah. And yet, we have an uncomfortable relationship with that man, right? <laughs> he, he, yeah. I'm thinking of our president, right? We have an uncomfortable relationship with whether or not that's legitimate, and and we have this need to want to tie ourselves into something larger, namely an aristocratic lineage, which is purportedly what we hate we have a very complicated relationship with all of that like we're so you know everybody's free and we can make ourselves who we want to be and anybody can grow up and be president but also i'm gonna watch the royal wedding and i'm gonna obsess about this family like they're so important it's just watch the crown and and downton abbey yes four times and this this is where i think uh fitzgerald's protagonist actually speaks with the author's voice it, it, in the in the third or fourth paragraph when he talks when he first mentions Gatsby he says Gatsby who represented everything for which I have an unaffected mm. scorn and that's the second half of kind of a, an odd paradoxical sentence because he yeah. first begins by saying Gatsby, Gatsby actually um, escapes my censure personally but represents everything for which I have an unaffected scorn mm. Caraway is saying here at the beginning the self-made man, this American dream, and all the trappings of it that East and West Egg represent, I censure them. I hate them. I have an unaffected scorn for the whole thing. And I think that's one of the, one of the main thrusts of this novel thematically. And one of the reasons, one of the ways, I should say, in which Caraway can be, uh, can be trusted. Hmm. He's, actually, a- he's actually saying what he means when he says that. Hmm. That's such a great observation. The irony that's kind of at the heart in within his heart, sort of, he can look past something that he scorns because there's a person there that is, is beguiling in some way. And this may be getting ahead of ourselves, but I would substitute heroic for beguiling. 
Hmm. I think Gatsby is the hero of this piece, um, in even in Carraway's eyes. And we get that from that first half of that sentence. Only Gatsby, the man who gives his name to this book, was exempt from my reaction. Hmm. And I and I think after we if we see that in chapter one, then our job for the rest of the story becomes figuring out what Caraway means by making Gatsby his hero, what Fitzgerald means by making Gatsby his hero. Yes. And what I, and I, I also marked that sentence with a giant star. And I also noticed that he changes tenses there. So it's Gatsby, the man who gives his names to this book, but Gatsby who represented past tense, everything for which I have unaffected scorn. And so it raised the question in my mind of does Nick change? Does the way he is Gatsby going to redeem whatever it is he stands for in Nick's eyes? Or is it never redeemed, but Nick just personally likes Gatsby? Hmm. Great question. Hmm. I think I think it's a great question. And I think Fitzgerald does answer it in the end. Ah. Uh, that's one we should keep in mind. I think that, that question's right on point. Who changes and 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 why? as the story goes along. Uh, and I, and I love that you mentioned that because the, what's the very next sentence? If personality is an unbroken mm-hmm. series of successful gestures, um, then there was something gorgeous about him, something, some heightened sensitivity to the promises of life as if he were related to one of those intricate machines that register earthquakes 10,000 miles away. First of all, that's a loaded metaphor, which we could talk about for a long time, <laughs> but even just the concept of personality is an unbroken series of successful gestures related to that concept of people changing is, is really rich with what, what he's doing there. Um, and so he's like layering this irony all, along with this sort of foreshadowing, I guess, because he's from the very get go, we know that something happens, right? We haven't even mm-hmm. met Gatsby yet. We know he doesn't, I mean, he's talking in the past tense. He's talking, there's some kind of, some kind of either their relationship or their lives are somehow torn asunder, right? Torn apart. Right. You know, yeah. From the very beginning. Yeah. This is not a story <laughs> that in the end, there's gonna be reconciliation between these two people. Right. Down at well, the end of that paragraph, since we're in that paragraph, there's a really, another great sentence. He says, no dash Gatsby turned out mm-hmm. all right in the end. And then he says, you know, it's what preyed on him that gave me my disillusionment. But but he asserts at the beginning that Gatsby turned out all right in the end. It doesn't go, doesn't go all the way to saying Gatsby was unaffected or unmoved or constant. Hmm. But you get that impression as you go through the story that Gatsby is actually unmoved. He actually is a constant, even heroic figure that is going after something with a single-minded vision that puts everyone around him to shame. And I think Caraway notices this and that's why he gives him such a thumbs up at the beginning of the story. And yes. He, and, the, and the sentence before that I marked because it seems what, what Nick admires in Gatsby is his extraordinary gift for hope, a romantic yeah. readiness. And then the immediate paragraph after that is that Nick's family has imagined a romantic past. And I marked every time Nick called something romantic. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, it reminds uh, me. Of, oh, sorry, David, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say that I love that you you mentioned how. Well, you may, it says that it's not even the dream; it's not even Gatsby and his dream that was causing the problem. But there was a foul dust that floated in the wake of his dreams. So he's single-minded, as you said, and that there's something heroic about that. And it's not even the dream itself that's problematic, but there's something that is in the wake of that dream that's foul. Oh yeah, that's, that's, I think that's, the whole novel hinges on that. I really do. I mean, think about this for a minute. What other literary characters from from the grand Western tradition are animated by a dream of a glorious future and stick to the pursuit of that dream through thick and thin with single-minded purpose? Don Quixote. 
just tell me when to quit. I'll just name them all. I mean, Aeneas jumps immediately to mind. This is the story of the Aeneid. Aeneas mm. getting the vision from the gods of this glorious, he doesn't say orgiastic future in the Aeneid. You know, that's what Fitzgerald says instead. Sorry, that's a spoiler. <laughs> Sticks to his dream. It's not really a spoiler and- if the book's 100 years old and you're just saying two <laughs> words from it. <laughs> I mean, I think the the parallels between Gatsby's heroism and the heroism of Aeneas are striking, so striking to me that they must have been intentional, I think. Hmm. So if he's Aeneas, is there a Dido? Is Daisy or Jordan Dido? I've I've never thought about that before. I've never thought about the the Aeneas. Oh, well, I'm going to absolutely look for this. Uh, I don't know about that. That but that would be hey, it's, more than I could say off the top it's worth of my head. Into but, it though, uh, but what I do think is what I do think is significant and and remarkable is how um, how single minded, how constant Gatsby is, and I really do think this is why Nick says only Gatsby uh, was exempt from my reaction. He turned out all right at the end, hmm. that- but but then the question of what preys on him. Uh, yeah. What foul dust floats in the wake of his dreams? That question could be asked of Aeneas in his times as well, or well, of Don Quixote in his. And I, and I love this. I had forgotten that the beginning here talks about the foul dust because that then becomes an image in chapter two, the ashes, the people living in the ashes that's caused by the train and, and modern technology. So he, yeah, he, he makes a big deal out of that image. Yeah. The, the concept of foul dust being in the wake of this grand place that Gatsby lives in is so, is so rich to me. Like the, if there was just a layer of dust all over everything that he is trying to make look so pristine and so perfect, that, but there's this dust that just blows across it as, as whenever Gatsby leaves, that's just kind of an image that's in my mind. Um, and that's, it's both, I don't know, it's so, it's so tragic, you know, in a sense, um, you, he prepares this, grand palace you know it's, it reminds me of uh like um citizen kane or something oh uh, yeah <laughs> yeah i was just thinking mm-hmm. that he builds this gorgeous palace and then in the end it's blown away by this sort of what the by a foul dust well yeah, and, and then and, shelley's poem ozymandias too same mm-hmm. I, same idea it's the dust over the ruins hmm. I just can't, uh, it's, it's often the case that in a, in a compact novel like this, that the author gets right to the thematic point in chapter one and then builds it out over the course of his story. But the ancient ringing changes on an ancient theme seem to be really packed in, in this first chapter. I mean, that foul dust, um, uh, I think can refer to any sort of cultural critique. We've got a hero who is mired, uh, and eventually brought down by the the um, disaster of the world he lives in. I mean, I, I think I might have mentioned this in that article I wrote. Cicero rising up to, in his oration against Catiline, delivers that famous uh, dictum, O tempora, O mores, which, you know, loosely translated means what a terrible age we live in. It's the kind of age that grabs heroes by the heels and pulls them down to hell. Hmm. And that that complaint uh, is as old as culture, and I, I see Fitzgerald making it here on the on you know page one with Gatsby as his hero and the foul dust that he refers to here as the the culture that he's trying to critique that he holds an unaffected scorn in Nick Carraway's words. And in that last bit of that sentence, which we haven't touched on yet, is so interesting too because he says that Gatsby's. 
um, he said that the, the, the sort of story of Gatsby distracted him, closed out his interest in the abortive sorrows and short-winded elations of men. What do you what do you make of that little phrase there? It closed out my interest in the abortive sorrows and short-winded elations of men. Angelina, what do you make of that? Well, earlier at the beginning, he says that he had always been the person everyone confided in, and then he ran from that, and then he made an exception for that for Gatsby. So I kind of read it the same way. Like he let it, you know, he he got close. He was inner circle. He knew he knew the secrets, and now he's not interested in in being that person again. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you do you agree with that, Adam, or do you have anything else to add? Before? Yeah, I think so. I, I think that that's definitely on the on the money. He's he's. Uh, I think he's packing the, all of his disillusionment into that sentence. I mean, I think disillusionment is a gigantic theme here, and uh, um, he's critiquing the thing that preyed on Gatsby. He's critiquing the foul dust that we've been mentioning in this sentence, and it it it's what drives him away back to the West. Uh, he's he's basically issuing his his judgment on Eastern society, on American society. He calls it abortive and short-winded, and he's looking for something more permanent. So he basically turns on his heel and walks out. There's a lot of interesting twists here. I mean, American literature is not it's not my uh, it's not my area, but um, I had been I've been talking a lot with my students on the symbolism of East and West in, in European literature. And so I made some examples with American literature. But, and so that's what's in the back of my head as I read this. And I kept thinking how Fitzgerald's twisting it. Right. So like Western literature, like Westerns, right, like True Grit and stuff like that. But the East is the civilized thing. And then when you're out on the frontier, that's that's barbaric. That's wild. That's chaotic. Right. Order is back East. Law and order and civilization is back East. Um but Fitzgerald seems to be turning that on its head, right? Like the civilization of the East is somehow barbaric in Fitzgerald's view. Oh, absolutely. Hmm. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. And it's represented by urbanization. It's represented by money and finance. It's represented by the lifestyle of the city as opposed to the lifestyle of the Midwestern town where he's going to stay later. You live in a house that's had your name on it for four generations and everybody knows you. Um, there's definitely a... The, the two images of West and East are very clear from uh, from the beginning of this one. Any, I like the inversion that you mentioned. It's definitely true. East represents uh, barbarism and disorder and chaos in a way that West doesn't. Hmm. One of the things we've been mentioning is this concept of, of judgment. And we're seeing throughout these first few chapters, the basically this it's a story told through comparisons and he's constantly going around comparing people with each other or comparing himself with other people i mean he think about the way he talks about tom and the way he compares daisy and jordan to each other and um uh he you know he's and he's drawing himself up against people as, as if as if he's trying to sort of make a statement about himself or feel a certain way about himself like when he describes tom he says uh now, don't think my opinion on these matters is final, Tom seemed to say, just because I'm stronger and more of a man than you are. We were in the same senior society, and while we were never intimate, I always had the impression that he approved of me and wanted me to like him with some harsh, defiant wistfulness of his own. He's, uh, we talked for a few minutes on the sunny porch, so he's constantly saying, this is where I am in relation to that person, or this is where this person is in relation to one another. Um, do you think that that there is a point at which in this story that sort of, I don't know if I want to say, but we, I don't want to be 
I'm not saying we should be critical of Fitzgerald, but at that at, there's a point at which that keeps us from really getting to know, well, maybe not getting to know, but really having a sense of who we should be rooting for or pulling for or uh, whose side we're on. Do you think that it either does that or doesn't do that? And if it does do that, is that a positive thing or a negative thing? Does the question that I just asked make that description of Tom? Well, I just mean the sense, the way he's constantly drawing comparisons between people, you know, it's oh. everywhere he's going, he's saying this, this person was like this, but that person was like that. And this is who, I, what I think of that, or this person was like this, but I'm like this. And he, I was just using that, that Tom one as kind of an example. Does it well, make- I think it really does uh, emphasize was something Angelina said a few minutes ago about image and identity being um, a important to everyone in the story and B kind of constructed everybody's got everybody's wearing a mask everybody's is uh emanating a persona and um in that in that sense nick care we might just be faithfully reporting that so that we the reader know what page we're on you know what i mean (laughs) yeah so that we know this is what's going on in this story all the characters are are trying to say something specific about who they are based on the image that they're trying to portray and the fact that it's that it's not organic, the fact that it's that's that it's put on, um, I think is thematically important here. Mm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Angelina, do well, you go ahead? Go go go. Well, um, so one of the things that's striking me about this book is how significant setting is and the descriptions of the setting. Um, so I, I thought it was super significant that Nick is literally on the edge of the West Egg. So he's in between these two worlds. I wrote that in the margin. I wrote, he's in between. So he's literally in between the West Egg and the, and the East Egg. And he's also, his little tiny poor man's cottage is in between these two mansions. So, and, and then he's yep. also in between Gatsby and the Buchanans. So he's, he's it's, 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 some, for some reason, it strikes me that in between is different than being the outsider. But I'm not exactly sure where, where that's all going to go. Hmm. It's interesting because I think you're right. He has relationships with everyone too. He's not an outsider because he actually is Daisy's second cousin. He knew Tom at college and then very quickly, I don't know if it happens in the first three chapters. I think it doesn't. Oh yes. Gatsby recognizes him him from their war days. Right. Right. So I thought, Oh, keep going. No, no, please go ahead. Well, that was, that was an interesting moment where it wasn't a mask. So much true identity, huh. so much true origin was recognized. Yeah. And so he's, and he's not, he's more of an in-betweener. Like you said, he's in and amongst um, the people with some real uh, organic relationships, which allows him to, which allows him to comment. And, and I think obviously a first person narrator has got to be in a place that he can comment. Um, and so the ambiguity of it becomes more important the more you think, because there he is, he could be, he could be, in a position to tell us all the truth, but, but will he, we don't know. Can he? Yeah. Right. Like, you mean, is he capable of it? Right. Like, you know, it's, I can think of plenty of times in life where you like to think of yourself as the critiquer and above a situation. And then you get so sucked into it, (laughs) you know, you're having you're having fun at the party. Maybe you don't want to critique it anymore. <laughs> well, that I think you've I think you've lit on something right there. Is, is the question one of the questions we need to ask ourselves is Nick Carraway a a a judge of this corrupt age, or is he a creature of this corrupt age, or is he 
going to try to be both. And um, if you watch him closely, you can see a lot of elements of him being just a creature of this corrupt age, just like everyone else. I mean, just even in these first three chapters, the, the issue of sexual morality, mm-hmm. um, I mean, he's a, he's just every bit as an alley cat as Tom Buchanan is. Hmm. Hmm. I don't know if this is, if it's, um, if this is pushing, uh, do we edit this? Yeah, yeah, well, yeah we can. <laughs> okay. uh, well, I was going <laughs> to pushing close reads in an uncomfortable direction, but you know, there's a fairly obvious allusion to a homosexual, um, tryst with Nick Carraway and the photographer in chapter two, right? Yeah. That's one of those things that it seems like people sort of argue well, when about. When he invites it? him, when, he, when the photographer invites him to come to get, to get together. Yeah. Yeah. At, at the okay, end well, of the maybe chapter. I'm just right? naive. I, I did not, I did not catch that. Oh, really? <laughs> it didn't strike me that way. Well, it's not, it's not explicit. But uh, I could just not, be terribly naive. So, well, yeah. he, he says, and, and David, you know, put a stop to this if you don't want this on the episode, but, but the photographer says, come to lunch someday. He suggested as we groan down the elevator, where anywhere. All right. I agreed. I'd be glad to ellipsis new paragraph. I was standing beside his bed and he was sitting up between the sheets clad in his underwear with a great portfolio in his hands. Beauty and the Beast, Loneliness, Old Grocery Horse, Broken Bridge, Ellipsis. Then I was lying half asleep in the cold lower level of the Pennsylvania station, staring at the morning tribune and waiting for the four o'clock. All train. right. I confess I was completely confused about what was going on right there with the ellipses. Well, that's I didn't know in 1925, was... you can't uh, put a homosexual tryst okay. in a novel. All right, or no. Published. I buy, I buy that. I, I was say. like, what is happening? I, I thought maybe he was reading something in the magazine. I didn't, I didn't know what was happening. Yeah. I mean, I've read people anyway, say that. That's sort of like, it's that, I mean, I don't, some people will argue that he's just like drunk there and doesn't know what's going on. I've read that before. So I, I don't have, well, well, what were you going to say about it? Go ahead. Well, I was, what I was going to say is that's one example. If you take it that way, that's one among four illicit affairs that Nick Carraway has in the course of the story. He has one in, in New Jersey while he's during the first summer that he just mentions in passing, he mm-hmm. has one with Jordan Baker and he has one with his girlfriend back home. Mm-hmm. So in terms of being a, in terms of being a moral judge of the world that he lives in, he's completely disqualified on that score. And that's very interesting of Fitzgerald to set up as his Cicero who stands up and says, Oh, tempora, Oh, mores in effect to have him with hands just as dirty as everyone else. Yeah. What, so people who are on the Facebook group know that there, there's been some discussion about this concept of an ideal type. So Matt Bianco would argue, has argued that one of the problems with this book is that there's not an ideal type toward with, towards which we can, uh, toward, towards, I guess it depends on where you live, um, towards which we can kind of look for virtue and that this is, and thus this becomes just kind of a cautionary tale, which is one of the things that could theoretically or potentially make it dangerous for readers. Do you, um, do you believe that Fitzgerald is trying to offer us um, it, that he's trying to sort of purposefully not offer someone to look up to and that uh, our narrator is sort of uh, being a product and a creature of the age and of the culture is a, uh, is more of a statement about the culture? Or do you think that he wants us in some way to, to say, to think that, well, that kind of behavior is, you know, it's just sort of par for the course and, but these are the ramifications of it. And we haven't gotten very far in the book yet. So, 
Yeah, I think it's a good question. I, I don't know if, if a full answer is possible with what we know of the novel so far. Yeah, well, but but I would certainly say this: um, there isn't an ideal type. I, I think whoever says that that this book doesn't have an ideal type is it has read it correctly. I would say. Uh, if, if I understand what an ideal type is, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, I understand that term to mean some sort of model of virtue that readers are being instructed to, to emulate or to approve of. Is that, is that right? Right. And so that even if there's bad behavior going on, so to speak, there's a model of good behavior that can be sort of a counter to the bad behavior. Yeah. I, I don't, I think the closest thing to an ideal type in this one, and you got to take the author's word for it, right? What you're trying to do is figure out what the author says about these things. I think the closest thing to an ideal type in this one is Gatsby himself because of, as Angelina pointed out, that infinite capacity for hope, that single-minded devotion to a goal, that heroic steadfastness. That's the closest we come in Gatsby. It certainly can't be Nick Carraway. Yeah. I don't think. What do you think? The in question of whether the question of, of whether the book is bad because there isn't an ideal type is a completely separate question, though. And it's one we'll have to address later because we haven't gotten far enough. Exactly. In these first couple of chapters, Angelina, uh, what do you what do you make of Gatsby? I mean, and what were and what you believe that both Fitzgerald and or Carraway uh, want us to think, feel about him, approve of him, not approve? I mean, he's obviously sort of a cipher early on, but. Um, what is your take on, on Gatsby? That's the super most general question I could possibly ask about him. <laughs> Nonetheless, I throw it out there because we'll see what it takes I up. ask it. <laughs> I ask it acknowledging that it's kind of a bad question. <laughs> that, okay, the, okay, so that was a lot of words. So the question is, what is my initial impression of Gatsby? Uh, yeah, basically. Thanks for accusing me of being wordy. <laughs> No, that was, that was, that was the finger, finger was pointing at me. I have a hard time listening when it's that many words. <laughs> uh, okay. I, I actually didn't, I didn't think about it that way. I was so aware of what Nick wants us to think about Gatsby. So mm. that's the way that I was reading it. So like all of the things I'm thinking to say, as soon as I think them, I think, well, I don't actually know if I, if I think that. So I think Nick is portraying him as the only real thing in this entire party. And yet there is so much evidence that he's not the real thing. There's something not real about him. Oh yeah, absolutely. So that's how he struck me. But I mean, I think he's a romantic figure. One of the things that I love about this book that I constantly think about is that exact question of whether Gatsby is, is real. And even if he is not what he pretends to be, does that make him less of a real person? If that makes sense. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, is he, in his essence, I mean, he may put on a mask, but behind the mask or despite the mask, is he still sort of the most true person in his essence, in his core? Nick says Nick's um, initial reaction to him, I think is really telling on that particular question, David. Um, Nick says, he smiled understandingly much more and speaking of Gatsby much more than understandingly. It was one of those rare smiles with a quality of eternal reassurance in it that you may come across four or five times in life. It faced or seemed to face the whole external world for an instant and then concentrated on you with an irresistible prejudice in your favor. It understood you just so far as you wanted to be understood, believed in you as you would like to believe in yourself and assured you that it had precisely the impression of you that at your best, you hoped to convey. 
Hmm. This is a this is a reaction to a to a warm, generous, heroic personality. Yes, and contrast that to the way he describes that same kind of look that Daisy gives, which can make you feel like you're the only one in the room. Exactly. Exactly. And in Daisy, it's a complete canard, right? Right. And And he he sees through it easily. Yes, he does. And and, and even in in Gatsby, the next sentence is, precisely at that point, it vanished. And I was looking at an elegant young roughneck, a year or two over 30, whose elaborate formality of speech just missed being absurd. Mm -hmm. That was a great line. Great combination of, and I think this is the essence of Gatsby. This is the, the answer to your question, David, I think. The essence of Gatsby is genuine, but also on a mission that involves constructing an identity that involves um, uh, that involves wearing a mask. Hmm. Yes, and and obviously in in the United States, if we are if, if the ideal is the self made man, then there's always a sense in which that's kind of a mask. Hmm. I think you're right. Yeah. But, and, and I then, think right, in the 1920s, oh, it was, it was, a, um, I think that was on the tips of everybody's brain. And I, so yeah. just a couple of paragraphs down after what you read is the conversation where Nick says, who is he? And they say, he's just a man named Gatsby. And then that whole conversation ensues. And I wrote in the margin, who is Gatsby? And I, so I feel like that's also going to be a question that pushes forward through the book. Oh, yeah. Who is, who is Jay Gatsby? I, you mentioned earlier that the setting is so important place and it, i mean look at the way this this conversation is framed because he said who is he i demanded do you know the other person says he's just a man named gatsby but then he clarifies his question <laughs> who where is he from i mean that's an what american does he do? question too isn't yeah. it when he says who is he what he really means is where is he from what does he do like yeah those are the things that he means that define him. And then right. a minute later, he says, I would have accepted without question the information that Gatsby sprang from the swamps of Louisiana or from the lower east side of New York. That was comprehensible. But young men didn't, at least in my provincial experience, inexperience, I believe they didn't, drift coolly out of nowhere and buy a palace on Long Island Sound. <laughs> That's First great. of all, it's just a great, great sentence. Just awesome sentences. It's yeah. Great it's, sentence. it's so great. And that's after they say, I think he killed a man. He doesn't care about that. It's, he, it sparks his curiosity, but it's still, where is he from? He doesn't really care if he killed a man. He doesn't care if he fought in the war, if he was German or American. What he cares about is where did this guy come from? Right. Which I find so fascinating. And, and as Angelina said, so American. Gets at the heart of the whole concept of being an American, especially you know, early in the 20th century. World War II hadn't happened yet. <laughs> Yeah, and this no. book is also dealing with a lot of World War One fallout. I mean, it's not su- super heavy in these chapters, but it's definitely the backdrop. I think intellectually, it's pretty heavy. Actually, I think this okay. this idea of of disillusionment mm. uh, that and and also nostalgia. the idea of uh, of nostalgia because the war came in and it's it wasn't the biggest deal in American history like it was in in French or English or German history, but still, it's a, it's a it's a world war that marks a watershed. But before which there was the good life and the good old days, and after which they're never coming back again. And if you add to that, that experience of World War I, if you add to that the triumph of science and Darwinism over and against religion, which, which was complete by 1925, the Scopes Monkey Trial, I mean, the evolutionary perspective on science had completely displaced religion in, in public life by Fitzgerald's time. You got profound 
disillusionment going on, intellectually speaking. Yes, yes. And, and I loved that very short reference to the fact that drunk Nick tries to read that religious book and just says it doesn't make any sense to me. Exactly. And also Tom Buchanan reads this scientific treatise yes. about this racist, racist scientific treatise and says, look, it's all scientific. And, and Nick calls <laughs> later, he calls those. Yeah, he says, accuses Tom of nibbling on stale ideas so as to, because his, his manly physical persona isn't satisfying him anymore. There's this critique of, of science having displaced us from the real verities that we once moored ourselves to and held on to. And so there's this underlying feeling of disillusionment because the old certainties are gone. Yes. And, and I think it's worth mentioning, even though I'm sure our readers are all you know, justifiably horrified by Tom's comments, if you put them into the context, he... He's not an outlier, outlier here, right? This eugenics and the master race and, and, you know, better mankind through science. That was the hot, that was the hot topic of the day leading into World War II. And there was lots, lots of big names in the United States. We're all for that. We're visiting Germany before the horrors became known. We're praising it. Um, lots and yeah. lots of that kind of scientific work and psychological work being done in the United States about the master race. So yeah, right. So where where religion makes no sense to the characters in the story, there's that. Yeah, science is going to figure out how to make the better man, the good man, the good life. And yet Fitzgerald is prescient enough to put in Nick's mouth yes. stale idea. He calls those stale ideas that Tom is in over his head to even be talking about. And that's that, that's really that's really quite something that he was able to perceive this early that this is this is these are bad ideas. Mm-hmm. Not so for a lot like Charles Lindbergh. I mean, he was just completely smitten with all of that stuff. It was very popular. Yeah, probably a little more popular with people that we're not supposed to talk about that. It's kind of their mythology would sort of be uh, tainted by... But if we really unpacked how much they were into that sort of thing, just key in there. Right. So I guess, yeah, I guess my point is not that these were good ideas, obviously, but that they were fashionable ideas. Right. Right. Like much of what's going on in this book, it's a question of what's fashionable and why and what does it mean? Like drinking. I think a, it's one of the reasons. That of Nick, champagne. I think it's one of the reasons that Nick uh, mentions in chapter one that he went, when I came back from the East, he's writing from the West. He's writing the story as a, as a, as a flashback mm -hmm. from a position of, you know, back West in his little hometown. And it's, it's the reason why he decides to leave at the end. He's because of his disillusionment, he's, he decides to go back somewhere where he has the chance at living in the good old days before science came up with the idea of racial eugenics or whatever, before religion was tossed on the ash heap, before the war came along and destroyed all of the foundations. Hmm. You know, that, that concept of destroyed foundations, I think is an important one with this book because it seems like, you know, whether it's the concept of them being sort of on an island, the, the constant references to water, being on the edge of water, um, we're going to see water play a huge factor later on. Um, I think at least a couple times, but they, there's something unmoored about everything. And it, and and this there's a placelessness about it, right? They're like that's one of the reasons why Caraway is asking about place because people are not bound to, and, and I don't mean that in a negative sense, I mean that in a positive sense. They're not bound to, bound by, moored by, by a place, or even perhaps by 
values in a sense, if you want to take it to the yeah, abstract. I would agree. I would agree. I think the, the, the place of the story is symbolic of all those other things. West is symbolic of values and permanence and all that, that exactly what you're talking about. Oh, yeah, yeah. And that comes through through, through some of Tom and Davies, Daisy's conversations in these first three chapters about whether or not that was a permanent move. Exactly. Yeah. I agree. Of course, Fitzgerald, well, um, Zelda came from Louisville and that's where, well, actually, no, she came from Alabama. Oh, no, Alabama. Yeah. And, but they, they lived in Louisville. They got married at the um, Seabock Hotel, actually where our conference is going to be next summer. And, um, you know, she died so, in Asheville, North Carolina. She, I just found out today. She, she did in a fire, right down the fire road in an asylum. <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, certainly their lives were quite tragic. They both died quite young. Um, but he, you know, he he comes from that Middle West area. I mean, that's that's where his you know their their moorings you know were in in Louisville and in that Middle West area. And no matter where they went, it seems like whether it was, you know, the years in Paris that he spent uh, hanging out with Hemingway and Gertrude Stein and so forth, um, or whether it was being in New York and all these lavish parties, it seems like there's this wistfulness or this, this sense of uh, the sense of longing for the place where there were roots. And then maybe that's why there's this constant allusion to the origin story. This constant. That was, to, I was just thinking that while you were talking. Mm-hmm. To, if you have a origin story, particularly one that goes way back and that has, you know, uh, success and aristocracy and all those things at the bottom end of it, the back end of it, then then there's a rootedness that is really, um, I don't, I guess, I don't know what it means, but it, there's certainly a sense of rootedness there, which certainly is uh, comforting. I don't know. I don't know exactly what that means or exactly where I'm trying to go with that, but. Considered an observation, and now you can talk, Angelina. No, I, I agree. Oh, I sorry, agree Angelina, too. go ahead. Well, no, I agree. I, I think all of that speaks to the question of identity. Uh, uh, what you're saying is everything we've been saying. So, who am I? Who is anyone? And if you don't know where you came from, if you don't know what your origin, I mean, that's the easiest way to answer the question, who am I, right? I am of this family. These are my people. But if you can't yeah. answer that question, yeah, I think that's, I, I would call that one of the two main sources of certainty in the, in the novel that have been uprooted. And I think the other one is arguably more important. And the reason I think that is because its symbol shows up earlier. And that's the symbol of TJ Eckelberg, the ophthalmologist. Mm-hmm. Um, I loved the idea. That, oh, go, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, it just kind of explain that symbol for just a minute, that, that billboard that looks out over the Valley of Ashes. <laughs> That is, uh, it says the eyes of Dr. T.J. Eckelberg are blue and gigantic. They're retina one yard high. They look out of no face, but instead from a pair of enormous yellow spectacles, which pass over a non-existent nose. And then here's the kicker. Evidently, some wild wag of an oculist set them there <laughs> to fatten his practice in the borough of Queens and then sank down himself into eternal blindness or forgot them and moved away. But his eyes, dimmed a little by many paintless days under sun and rain, brood on over the solemn dumping ground. Here's a glorious symbol, one of the greatest mm-hmm. in American literature of the problem of the 20th century, which is that God yes. has either sunk down himself into eternal blindness or forgot us all and moved away. This is what the World War I did. This is what the triumph of evolution did to the American intellectual scene. 
And so what you've got is God's eyes in, in all of the, all of the external ways, still looking out over the world, but there's nothing behind him anymore. And the world therefore is a valley of ashes. This is why you have to move back West. This is why you're searching around for somewhere to go, searching around for certainties to moor yourself to because God oh, has. Yeah. That and was in, very well explained. That, that was really good. And in Gatsby, we have the one person who has a single mindedness, at least of, of what he believes that rootedness can be tied to. We haven't discovered exactly what it is right. Yet, but his pursuit exactly of it right. is single minded mm-hmm. and without, mm-hmm. yes, it, it's not, it's sort of, it's, 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 it's moored to something It's more to his hope, but it's also not being distracted by all these other things. Yeah, Even the fact that he exactly throws these right. parties is deeply ironic. If you're a hero and there is no God, what do you do? Well, you got to make up your own. And that's what heroes do in the face of certain death and doom and destruction beyond all hope. They soldier on and they, they cook something up. Hmm. It's Daisy Buchanan. If it's not going to be a, a future that is set for us by God, I got to make my own. And what Fitzgerald seems to be saying is Gatsby gave it his best shot with pure, uh, single-minded devotion. Hmm. It's not a super and, optimistic outlook, but you could argue that it's consistent. Hmm. I want to add one more thing about the uh, the glasses um, that struck me was the fact that when Tom shamelessly goes to the home of his mistress, <laughs> it is yeah. under the watching eyes of yeah, that billboard. Exactly right. It's also the place where later on in the novel, uh, George Wilson says, God sees. He's also standing <laughs> underneath the billboard when he says that God sees. I'm, I was struck this time in reading it at how much sort of lack of guilt or conscience there was as they uh, throughout those scenes. And that, so, you know, if God's watching you t- sin, I mean, do you think that <laughs> conscience plays a role in that, right? Like there's some sort of guilt right. going on, but, but, but they've shut themselves off to that so much that there is no guilt. The, co- the conscience doesn't even exist. And it seems like Nick is sort of on the verge of, of like on, on the verge of, he, has, he sort of has to, he sort of does make a decision, right? Like whether he's going to allow his conscience um, in the way that he's judging these people to, to rule the day or whether he's going to sort of give into it and, or just kind of ignore it. Well, he chooses to ignore everything, right? But Jordan is the most dishonest person I've ever known, but you know, you can overlook dishonesty in a woman. Like he just, yeah just overlooks everything. And the other thing about the shamelessness of, of Tom and, and oh, I already forgot her name. What is it? Mildred? I already forgot her name. Oh, oh which the, one? Uh, his mistress. The mistress. Oh, Myrtle. 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 Another, some other early turn of the century name. Um, yeah. uh, at, when you first meet them at the apartment and everyone's talking about how miserable they are in their marriages, it's almost, it starts off and you expect we're going to get the love justifies itself speech right well they're in love so it makes everything okay and then he breaks her nose <laughs> right he it's the most anti-romantic nose. ending to that scene right that they're all blood on the blood on the furniture and she's trying to keep it from getting everything stained and they're trying to you know patch her up and it was just he completely he just <laughs> undermined that that scene Fitzgerald did it was brilliant yeah I agree that that was um that's that's a um quintessential scene. I think it's one of the most important scenes in the story. And it speaks to the, uh, the concept that you were mentioning when you first read it, Adam, that you were saying that you didn't, you barely had a sense of plot. And that's one of the complaints that people level about this book. I mean, I don't, I don't think it's 
I mean, you can criticize it if you want, but I think that's kind of the point is that there's sort of, he's so much of it deals in anticlimax. Like you feel like it should be this big moment, but it really sort of amounts to nothing. Oh, but that seems like that just fits the spirit of that age though. I mean, that's one of the things that Fitzgerald has got to be complaining about. There's no, after World War One, there's no linear narrative to make sense of life anymore. It's just scenes, parties, and this and that. Yeah, it's what T.S. Eliot's trying to say, right? Exactly, which I read T.S. Eliot was an early admirer of this book when no one else liked he it. He was. He was one of the first champions that brought it to America, is my understanding. Even Hemingway mm. didn't love it. <laughs> no surprise mm. there, I suppose. Hemingway, Hemingway didn't love Zelda. Hemingway, that's true. <laughs> Hemingway didn't like a lot of stuff, so... Um, well, let's, you know, we should probably start thinking about wrapping this up. So let's, let me ask you two questions as we wrap up. What, the first one is uh, what, well, Adam, in your case, what would you recommend people look out for? And Angie and Lena, I'll let you go first so you don't get colored by his advice. But what are you going <laughs> excited to look out for? And then the second thing is just offer some, some final thoughts on what you, you, what you like or, or disliked about, about this section or, or uh, well, I'm, however I'm you want to answer that. <laughs> continue to look for the things that I think Fitzgerald set up at the beginning, the question of identity and masks and disillusionment. And I, I want to see how that all plays out. I want to see what the question, answer to the question, who is Gatsby? And I want to figure out what's the file dust. What is it that thwarts Gatsby's desire? And I guess the last thing I'll say is uh, I'm really, I'm so excited to read this with two people who absolutely love it and have read it a lot. This is, this is going to be fun for me. Mm. That's great. I I um I really think this has been a great discussion so far. And I think that the thing to watch out for as we keep going is this question, since you brought it up a minute ago, the question of the ideal type. I think that's a really interesting, um, that, that could lead to an interesting discussion if you watch carefully in the next few chapters. And and I would I would advise you to watch Gatsby in particular. In what sense is he um the the protagonist of this story? I mean, the question of who who's really the protagonist, I think, is a is a good debate. But if you watch out for, on the assumption that Gatsby is the protagonist, watch out for how Fitzgerald sets him up as the hero, mm. and what he might be saying, Fitzgerald, that is about heroism, mm. because that really, I think, might be one of the main things he's trying to poke at us on. Mm. And you know, it's funny that I mentioned Hemingway a minute ago because I think that Fitzgerald and Hemingway and their books are in a sense bantering back and forth about what the concept of a hero is. Uh, um, reading them, I mean, I think that they have slightly different views born out of a similar time. Um, so that concept of, of heroism, I think, is really important to, to, the, to, the, to the era in general, to an era in which these men, so many of these men came back from World War I as different people. And they went into it with this concept of what a hero is, especially an American hero, right? And the self-made man, all that kind of stuff. And that evolves and changes. And, and Fitzgerald's time, not perhaps overseas, but being informed by the war, being in the military during the war, probably had to have played a part in that. Um, one thing I think that's also worth looking in for along those lines is what are the things that it's clear that we are supposed to um, think Gatsby is... Or in what ways are we? Is it clear that we're supposed to think that Gatsby is worth emulating? Because there are some very specific ones that I think the book is saying this is a person who we should be imitating and is worth looking to as a model. Sometimes they're very narrow and specific, and sometimes they're a little more general. But I think that that's well. What he's already said is is praiseworthy about him is his extraordinary gift for hope, and I think we could really contemplate that a long time because there's a real sense in which that generation was completely hopeless. So. 
I could see Fitzgerald saying, look, just to have hope in the face of all this hopelessness is heroic. Yeah, let's watch for that. And and don't don't forget to watch when we see what happens to Gatsby in the end as a result, mm. because um, that's food for thought for sure. Mm. That's such a great idea, like ex- an extraordinary gift for hope, a capacity for hope. I don't wherever whatever world you come from, whatever worldview you you kind of live by, or whatever world you're born into. That that concept is is both beautiful and so rich to think about. Well, thanks to you both for joining me. Um, this has been a good time. And let's plan on uh, next week for everyone who's listening, we'll do chapters four and five, and that'll be up on December uh, 7th. We will record it on the, the morning of the 7th, and then we'll get it up that afternoon evening. So uh, thanks for thanks for joining me to you both. Uh, either of you have anything you want to plug? Angelina, what's going on with, with your classes or anything anything you've been doing that you want to plug? Oh, well, I mean, I'll be opening registration in February for next year's classes. So, um, you know, anybody who's interested in that should go over to my website, angelinastanford.com and sign up for my mailing list. Uh, There has been overwhelming demand for me to uh, have, in addition to my long-term classes, more short-term classes for adults. So if anyone has an opinion on that, would like to send me a feedback of what they'd like to see me offer. I'm, I'm very open to hearing that. Awesome. Adam, Center for Lit. What is going on with the Center for Lit that you want to you want to plug or pitch or anything like that? Well, our our online academy opens for registrations first of March, a little bit after Angelina's, and just lit classes for kids in grades five through twelve. So if you want to check that out at centerforlit.com, you are more than welcome. Uh, just a quick word about what we're doing on the website before then. Uh, basically, all kinds of guides to the great books. Center for Lit is is um, committed to showing you how to read them for the most pleasure and understanding, and also how to teach them for the best results in the classroom. So we've got teacher training, curriculum materials, we've got book clubs, podcasts, webinars, all devoted to great stories, books, whether books or movies or in any genre. So centerforlit.com is where we're doing our work and we invite you to come by and take a look. One of my favorite things about this whole world that we're all a part of is when people come up to me and they're like, so aren't you and Center for Lit and like Classical Academy, aren't you guys all like competitors? And well, I guess, I mean, we're kind of after some of the same people, but we also like are after the same thing, right? We're after sort of the same conversations and the same ideas. And, this, and sort it's, of uh, we, it's we often so quote Mortimer Adler on this subject, uh, who talked about the great conversation and that's what we're interested in. It turns out it takes more than one person to have a conversation. So I'm glad we get to work with other people. I guess you could preach to the, just preach to the mirror if you wanted to. Um, <laughs> a lot of money in preaching to the mirror now that I think about it though. <laughs> uh, so check out uh, AngelinaStanford.com and it's uh, centerforlit.com, right? Yep. Okay, centerforlit.com. Cool. And they both have Facebook, various Facebook pages and Instagram pages and all that. So make sure if you're interested and in, if you like what you heard from either of these two fine people, search them out on the internet and you will find more of the same. All right. With that, uh, thanks to everyone who's been listening. Thanks to Adam and Angelina for joining me and uh, thanks to all of you for listening. If you want to participate, like I said, you can Send a question to closereadspodcasts at gmail.com or find out the uh, find the Close Reads uh, page on Facebook. We also have uh, the Close Reads Twitter page if you want to follow us there. Uh, again, thanks for listening. Happy reading and we'll talk to you next week. Mm-hmm.